This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 10th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt. He talks about the success of a fast-moving mega-trial for coronavirus treatments. Next, we have producer Megan Cantwell. She talks with researcher Saul Vieda about transferring the benefits of exercise by transferring blood in mice. Now we have contributing correspondent Kai Kuferschmidt. He wrote this week about a UK mega trial designed to test treatments for COVID-19. Hi, Kai. Hey, Sarah. We're talking about the UK's, uh, it's called the recovery trial. And it has some differences with other ongoing trials of drugs for coronavirus. What are some of the big differences with recovery? The main difference in some sense is that it's a really, really big trial. They have included more than 12,000 patients now. In an outbreak like this, if you really want to have a really good, clear, robust result, one of the most important things is to include a lot of people to get a really strong signal of efficacy. That's something that recovery has been able to do. And really no other trial in the world has been able to get those patient numbers. This is in the UK and the United Kingdom has a lot of cases for its size. Is that one of the reasons that this trial has been a success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they didn't have that many patients in the first place, obviously they wouldn't be able to enroll that many patients. Some of the people I talked to, so for instance, one of the scientists, he's from Norway, he was saying the recovery trial is really successful in the sense that one in six patients that goes to a UK hospital with COVID-19 ends up in the trial. Wow. You can kind of wonder why they managed to include that many patients. And one reason is that they have the National Health Service. All the hospitals took part in that. And the top doctors in the nation wrote a letter to all the hospitals and all the staff saying, you know, here are the three trials that we want you to prioritize and please try to include your patients in these trials if you can. So that's kind of how they, they ended up with those huge patient numbers in the first place. That allowed them to, in a very short time, get some, some answers. As a result of having all these patients enrolled and kind of this coordination at the national level for recovery, they've seen a lot of results in a short time. Can you talk about some of the drugs they've been able to either give a thumbs up to or a thumbs down to? The first one that was a really big deal was the hydroxychloroquine arm of the study. So much has been said and written about hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> I mean, 
A lot of that was based on trials either with very few patients or trials that were observational. So where the patients weren't randomized to either get hydroxychloroquine or a different drug or a placebo, but you basically looked in retrospect and compared how patients did who got hydroxychloroquine and patients who didn't. The recovery trial data is the best data we have for severely sick hospitalized patients being treated with hydroxychloroquine. And they just didn't see a significant difference in how the hydroxychloroquine group did versus a standard care group. Mm -hmm. And they put that out in a press release. And within a few days, a lot of other trials that were ongoing that would clearly not have stronger results were ended. I wouldn't say it's quite the end of the hydroxychloroquine saga, probably, but it certainly marked a, a turning point in that. And on the other side of the roster here, we have a drug that actually helped patients that were in the hospital. So that's dexamethasone. It's a steroid drug that's also been known for a long time. It's quite cheap. It's widely available. So it's a really nice drug to be shown to be effective against COVID-19. There's been a lot of debate from the beginning about how much of the severe illness at the end in patients is really the overreaction of the immune system. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, where the steroid drugs attack the pathogenesis, really. So they kind of dampen down the immune system. And the hope is that that will mean that, that the symptoms of patients will be less severe and people are more likely to survive. And, and that turned out to be the case. I mean, they, they found that mortality went down by one third in patients that received dexamethasone. That was really the first big randomized trial in this outbreak that showed a clear difference in mortality. The National Health Service, within hours after the result was announced, changed its standard of care to include dexamethasone. And this is pretty surprising. These aren't peer-reviewed results. These are press release results. Yes, that's been a huge point of contention. There's just a kind of tension inherent in this fast-moving pandemic between, you know, having really robust results and getting them out there as fast as possible. And I talked at length with Martin Landry, one of the principal investigators of the trial about it. His argument is you kind of get the baseline results first. You can look at the data and see, okay, there is a difference in mortality and might be some changes in, you know, the percentages, but nothing major. But then there's a lot of other data that you want to put in the paper that takes some more work. So his argument was, this is an important result. It could change the outcome of patients right now. Mm -hmm. So let's put it out and then try to get the paper out as soon as possible after that. And the paper ended up coming out, I think, seven days after the results. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a wild west now. Different places, different hospitals have different standards of care. Like in the U.S., a lot of hospitals are using convalescent plasma. This is a blood product from a person who's recovered from COVID-19, and they're using that to treat patients in the hospital. But convalescent plasma hasn't been subjected to the same level of scrutiny. The same level of evidence hasn't been obtained, you know, for that as, say, a dexamethasone, the drug we just talked about. Right. And I mean, that's, there's two points there that I find really interesting. And one of them is if you're going to give patients these drugs anyway, you might as well be using that to generate data that then shows whether the drug works. So they aren't collecting data on these treatments? So they are collecting data very often, right? The problem is, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about randomizing patients. Right. You can just treat patients with something and then say, okay, we're collecting a lot of data and we're going to look back at how the patients did that received the drug and how patients did that didn't. 
But there's a hierarchy of evidence. And really in that hierarchy, a, a randomized trial, just because it gets rid of all the biases in who would receive a drug or not otherwise. So everyone I talked to really agreed that what we need in this particular situation, this pandemic, when you want to see as fast as possible whether a drug has a big effect on a hard outcome, like do people die or do they survive? What you need are large randomized trials. And when you ask people why they don't do it, it also goes back to what you were saying. A lot of people said when they try to convince doctors to take part, the doctors say, well, but I have a good feeling. I think I know what works. Right. Maybe, I mean, doctors are sometimes willing to accept a lower standard of evidence to guide their decisions. It then becomes very difficult to get to that higher level of evidence because to do that, you need to accept that half of your patients are not going to receive whatever you believe to be the most useful. That's the inherent tension in the, in the whole, in doing these kinds of trials when you have some observational data already, but you don't really have the kind of strong data that lets you say with confidence, okay, this works. I'm here in the U.S. and we have many, many cases, but there isn't this size patient group being randomized. Is that because of what we just talked about, or is it more a lack of coordination? The U.S. has done one big trial. So the National Institutes of Health did the first remdesivir study that was a randomized placebo-controlled trial that, that included a lot of patients and did give a robust result. Didn't really see a difference in mortality, but it showed that patients who receive remdesivir stay in hospital for a shorter time period. Mm -hmm. Why haven't there been more trials like that I think it is a lack of coordination. You can argue that the whole response in the U.S. to this yeah. virus has been marked by a lack of coordination. And then, of course, it does help when you have certain structures in place. So again, the National Health Service in the U.K., with all of these hospitals part of this National Health Service, of course, that makes it a lot easier. You put in place this one structure, one ethical board, and then you kind of do it from there. While if you have to piece together a coalition of different hospitals and different investigators, it becomes a little bit more complicated, I think. Right. But given the, the sheer amount of cases the U.S. has had, I mean, certainly data could have been generated that would have informed both the U.S. and the rest of the world a lot better about what works and what doesn't. Oh, this reminds me of this other point you make in your story about the solidarity trial. This was a WHO multi-center trial that started in March, and we talked about it on the podcast. And it seemed like there was going to be this really quick ramp up, but they did run into the problems you talked about, overcoming regulatory hurdles in a bunch of different countries. How is it going now? What's the story with solidarity? Yeah, solidarity was supposed to be the big one, and I think it might still end up being the big one just in terms of the patients that, that have been included. So at the moment, they have around 5,500 patients randomized, roughly, let's say, half of what recovery has. Right. They started at around the same time as recovery. But like you said, they really had trouble because the idea was to include patients all over the world. And that means you have to go to all of these different jurisdictions and get regulatory approval and ethical approval. And that turned out to be quite a big hurdle. And one of the factors ironically, was also that this trial, like recovery, was built to be very simple in the sense that you want to keep frontline workers from having to do a lot of work when they include patients in this. So really, you only want to collect a little bit of data when the patient is admitted to hospital, and then you collect more data either when the patient dies or when he is uh, discharged from the hospital or 28 days later if he's still in the hospital. To do that, the trial design was made quite simple, but then in some of the European countries, that, that simplicity itself became an issue because regulators are used to having trials that collect more data for safety and other reasons. 
this actually in some countries apparently was a problem and led to the green light being delayed. So now the solidarity trial is um, recruiting about 500 patients a week. That's the last I heard. It might have gone a little bit up from that. There are 39 countries already included and dozens more are waiting to be included. And it has to kind of move around the globe, right? As the pandemic changes, as the hotspots rise up in different parts of the world. Right. And that's really its strength. You know, any European trials that were going on are basically running out of patients. But the solidarity trial, because it's, I think it has included most patients from Iran at the moment, it included a lot of patients from Peru already. It has this ability to basically scoop up patients wherever they appear. And of course, we're seeing the pandemic move at the moment, but it might also, you know, move back if a second wave Mm -hmm. comes in Europe. So as time goes on, the strengths of solidarity now that it's approved in a lot of countries may come to the fore and it might really help solidarity get to answers. Of course, because recovery has given us some answers already, that makes some of the results from solidarity, say, less exciting, a little bit redundant. I mean, it has four arms and two of those arms were hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir-ritonavir, the HIV drug combi. And we have very robust results on both of those from recovery. So those arms have now been dropped from solidarity. The big question really becomes, as it includes more and more patients, what are the next drugs that should be included? Because there seems to be a chance that solidarity is going to be the next trial that gives us really interesting answers. The question is, what drugs do we really want those answers on? Do you know what the next steps are for recovery? Do they have more drugs on the docket that they're going to be looking at in the UK? Recovery has a couple more things. So it's still randomizing patients. It's uh, testing acithromycin. That's the antibiotic that in some drug regimens was given with hydroxychloroquine. Right. And then they're testing an antibody called tocilizumab. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that. I think it's tocilizumab. (laughs) I'm not going to try. Go ahead. (laughs) And they're also trying convalescent plasma. But Landry said that it's likely that it's going to take another month or two or even longer until they have robust results on any of those arms, Mm -hmm. especially given that the number of patients being randomized has now gone down in the UK as well. But you never know, you know, if there's a very clear signal, they might also stop one of the arms early. So, you know, another press release could come any day. Thank you so much, Kai. Thanks, Sarah. Kai Kuferschmidt is a contributing correspondent based in Berlin. You can find links to his story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Saul Vieda about transferring the benefits of exercise by transfusing blood. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Aging can impact so many parts of your brain, from the cells themselves to general cognitive function like memory. 
but there has been a pretty widely accepted intervention to prevent cognitive decline and even rejuvenate some parts of the brain that doesn't involve surgery or taking pills. It's exercise. But in elderly people with mobility issues, this can be a difficult task, which is why figuring out the mechanisms behind how exercise improves the brain is so important. Sauviet and colleagues wrote in Science this week about their experiment, which transferred the benefit of physical exercise from one mouse to another. Thank you so much for joining me, Saul. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Could you start by describing exactly what type of benefits are seen in the brain as a result of exercise? I mean, from my perspective, cognitive benefits are huge. Even when you're older, it can actually reverse some of those cognitive decline. Regeneration is another one. It can stimulate stem cell and neuron production. And just the plasticity, just overall the communication between the neurons just improves. And I think we're even appreciating now that even inflammation goes down in the brain. So it just seems to hit almost all these hallmarks of aging. Another area of research that your paper builds off of are previous studies that show benefits from transferring the blood of younger mice to older mice. What did these studies reveal? In work that we and others have done, what we've realized is there's this communication between the periphery and the brain. Normally, we think of the blood-brain barrier and sort of these two separate entities. And what we're realizing is, no, there's a lot of crosstalk. And it turns out that there's actually almost like a, a memory or a communication of youthfulness that is within the blood. So a series of signals, different proteins and cell types that are signaling youth. And then the brain can actually respond to that. And as you get older, if you reintroduce these signals, you can actually start promoting and reversing many of those same hallmarks. Stem cells get activated and cognition's improved and even inflammation is sort of attenuated. What your team's research focuses on is kind of combining these two areas of study. You tested whether transferring plasma, which is blood without its cellular components, can actually transfer the benefits of exercise from a mouse that has exercised a lot to a more aged mouse. I'm curious how much of a workout these mice got before you transferred their plasma. One important thing to keep in mind is it's voluntary wheel running. So it's not forced running. You put basically a running wheel in a cage and these mice just go crazy and they love to run on it. So they're quite active. And we allow them to have access to this running wheel for about a month and a half, six weeks. And then after that, we collected their blood and then isolated their plasma. And then we had, of course, the the sedentary counterparts, which are age mats, many of them litter mates. They just don't have access to a running wheel. Once you transfer this plasma to the aged mice, How did their cognitive function change? It doesn't quite get to the level of a young animal, but it's definitely, let's say these animals are 18 months old, maybe the equivalent of someone that's around 65. They're performing much more closer to probably mid-30s to early 40s. They're performing more like maybe a six-month-old animal. And we see that transferring the plasma, those signals from exercise, it recapitulates quite a bit of that effect, maybe 80, 85% of the effect that we're seeing with just the exercise. This wasn't just one transfer of plasma. This happened multiple times. Yeah. So what we do is we give about 5% volume per mouse and we do it eight times over about a month. And then we test them cognitively. And the reason that we do it over that time period is we want to allow enough time for the stem cells to get activated, enough time for the neurons to be born and integrate into sort of the brain circuitry. And just a lot also, you know, we know that there's structural changes within these neurons that have been there the entire life. So we want to allow enough time for these sort of cellular and molecular changes to happen in the brain that give us the best chance of seeing cognitive benefits. What exactly is changing in the plasma that's contributing to these beneficial impacts? 
What we found is that most of the changes that are occurring due to exercise are involved in metabolism, are involved in decreasing inflammation, but most of those signals, most of those proteins were coming from the liver. So somehow the exercise is stimulating the liver to secrete these proteins, which then signal to the brain, go back to a more youthful state or restore cognitive function. So it really seems to be this liver to brain access that we seem to have identified that mediates these effects of exercise. We touched earlier on studies that have shown the benefits of transferring young plasma. Did you see any relationship between younger mice who exercise producing more of this protein than older mice that exercised? So what we did is we picked ages that were beyond that sort of youthful state. So we wanted to tease apart the difference from young blood from the difference from exercise. And what we did is we had a second cohort that was what we call mature. So they were about seven to eight months of age. Normally, when we do that young blood transfer, that's in a two to three month animal. So we did that on purpose. And what we see is even when we take the blood of these mature exercising mice, we still see the benefit of exercise in the old mice. So it doesn't have to be age match. What we haven't done is we haven't exercised the young and then put it in. Is it additive? So that's still one of those pending questions that we have to look at. But it does go across ages. You can still transfer that signal. And this protein, GPLD1, also goes up in the blood even of the younger mice, the mature mice. So how does this protein that's produced in the liver then transported up to the brain end up improving brain function? Yeah, so from the proteomics that we did, we identified one enzyme, which is called GPLD1. And what that does is it actually cleaves other proteins that are linked to the cell surface. So it's able to come and, and cleave a number of them. It's quite specific. It's specifically to these little, what's called GPI anchors, and it just cleaves them and lets them go. But I think the specificity is really important. And then we did additional proteomics. And what we found is when this protein goes up in the blood, it then cleaves a number of these targets and it causes inflammation to go down, particularly a type of immune response called complement. So that decreased. And it also stimulated wound healing processes like coagulation. Now, the interesting part is that we don't think the protein itself actually gets into the brain. So it's not actually going through the blood-brain barrier, but rather it's affecting that systemic milieu and that's promoting this youthfulness in the brain. It's interesting because the applicability of the research isn't just, okay, we're improving the aging brain, but you're also learning just more about how the brain works in general. Absolutely. And I, I think it, again, points to this relationship between the immune responses and the brain. We know that the immune system seems to play a really important role. And here we're sort of pointing at the fact that there are changes in exercise that are targeting, again, this sort of immune component and leading to this improvement in cognition. I think it really sheds light and sort of gears us towards trying to understand these different inner tissue communications. I mean, exercise here, it's coming from liver, but there's other interventions. You know, there's caloric restriction. Like we had mentioned, there's young blood. Is each one of those eliciting a different response in a different tissue? Is, is that why we can sort of improve cognition from different areas? And I think that's good from a therapeutic standpoint because you want multiple ways of causing an improvement because not everyone may respond the same way. And most of these studies have been in mice. It's been a little harder showing these benefits in humans. Is the protein that you found, GPLD1, is that also found when humans exercise? The really exciting part was that we were able to collaborate with the UCSF Memory and Aging Center, and they had access to blood samples from elderly these elderly were actually fitted with Fitbits. So we actually had access to the number of steps that they took. And we could actually segregate these over 70-year-old 
individuals into people that are active and people that are sedentary. In essence, you know, voluntary exercise versus not. And we look for this protein again, GPLD1 in their blood. And just like in the mice, you have an increase in sort of the circulating levels of GPLD1 than people that are doing exercise versus sedentary. And that's really exciting because that means we see this conservation, you know, across species. And it's applicable to humans. And that is really exciting when you're trying to find targets or potential downstream therapeutic agents. This plasma transfer looks super promising in mice, but it's not something that's going to be available for humans anytime soon, right? This is really exciting research. And we've identified factors that we're now going to explore that could potentially be a therapeutic. You know, in talking to my mom, and I, I run everything from my mom. My mom comes from Guatemala, you know, um, immigrant to the U.S. And she's like, oh, my goodness, this is like exercise in a bottle. And I'm like, whoa, 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 we're, we're quite, we're, we're a ways away from calling this, you know, exercise in a bottle. So I, I always just warn people that, you know, yes, of course, it's there. It lends itself to, to try and sort of skip through a bunch of steps and go directly into like, yes, I want the pill. We have targets and that's exciting. And that leads us and, and gets us started on sort of our way towards developing therapeutics, but definitely going to take a little bit of time. There seems to be so many different ways that you can go from this paper that you're publishing in science. What are your more immediate next steps with this research? Ongoing research is how exactly is it that a protein that's not getting into the brain, a protein that's affecting more of this sort of immune component in the blood, how is it having the effect? And then the second one is, does it translate into sort of a preclinical context of neurodegeneration? So we're also looking at what about not just in the context of aging where there's no cell death, but what about in the context of, say, an Alzheimer's model? Is it also having this sort of beneficial effect? Can you actually restore some of the neurodegenerative phenotypes that are associated with A-beta plaques by doing, again, this sort of exercise factor or by just introducing, you know, GPLD1 itself? Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Saul Vieda is an assistant professor of anatomy at the University of California, San Francisco. You can find a link to his research at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you can find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.